welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and thanks for sticking with us, listeners. We're back with another end of the year episode with a special friend of mine, Moroni Jessup. He's been on before. I think he was on just a few episodes ago talking about Mormons in Missouri. And this is an episode we have been trying to record for a while now. It's a very personal episode for my guest, so I hope you'll engage it respectfully. Moroni Jessup is a practicing Mormon fundamentalist, which means he believes in what he interprets as the fundamental doctrines of early Mormonism. He joins thousands of others in the practice of plural marriage and law of consecration and things like that. He's dedicated his life to this, and over the years, through the interactions in the podcast and in the historical community, Moroni and I have become good friends. Moroni is somewhat of of a protector in this community. Whenever I or other women run into dangerous situations, you know, in, in the fringes of any community, you'll run into people who are unwell or have unprocessed trauma or aren't doing their work or mental illness that they aren't dealing with. And that can lead to a lot of scary behaviors and things. And Moroni has often been there when I've encountered some really scary situations with with some Mormon fundamentalists who aren't necessarily stable. So I've appreciated him for that. I appreciate his ability to stand up for what he believes in, um, whether that's his belief in belief itself in Mormon fundamentalism, which is often controversial, or when he stands up against those of his own faith and belief system. And we're going to talk about that today. What I think is one of the most interesting things is the idea of DNA and Mormonism. Now, on the podcast, we have discussed many times the topic of race, doctrine, heritage, ideas of colorism, the Lamanite doctrine versus how people of African descent are placed within Mormon cosmology. And one of the things that we haven't talked a lot about, but is happening in a lot of communities, especially in the Mormon fundamentalist communities, is the challenging of old ideas on race. Now, as you know, or maybe you don't know if you're just tuning in for the first time, for a long, long time, Mormonism restricted members of African descent in their temples and did not allow men of African descent to get the priesthood. This, of course, has led to a lot of pain over the years, a lot of prejudice. Not only does the restriction prohibit and limit the humanity and spiritual welfare of people of color, but it also affects the white membership. It seeps into the psyche uh, a supremacy that whiteness is somehow more ordained. Whiteness is somehow chosen differently from God. Whiteness is somehow separate and better. Whiteness is preordained. That white Whiteness somehow means that you made better choices in a, in a pre-earth life. At least that's how it is in the context of Mormonism. And that causes a lot of problems. It's caused many, many problems in our community for many years. Mormon fundamentalists still believe in these ideas. Now, the, the institutional LDS mainstream Mormon church officially abandoned the priesthood restriction, the temple ban in 1978. It was a big day for people of color in Mormonism, especially people of African descent who were allowed to get the priesthood if they were men and men and women were allowed to go into the temple. That didn't mean racism ended in Mormonism, but it was it was a good first step. 
However, a century-old doctrine still existed in the ancestral memory of Mormonism. And, you know, the LDS Church still has work to do when it comes to issues of racism, as does our whole society, as we're grappling with, you know, a more global world and we're interacting with all different kinds of cultures, all different kinds of heritage, all different kinds of backgrounds and belief systems. But Mormon fundamentalists in 1978, the majority of them saw this as the LDS Church was completely out of order. The LDS Church caved into political pressure. And we mentioned this in the podcast, but convert baptisms to Mormon fundamentalists. Mormon fundamentalism tripled the year that the LDS Church lifted the priesthood ban. They were getting all the LDS people who really felt like the LDS Church had given um, given way to political pressure. So a lot of Mormon fundamentalists still adhere to this. Uh, and it's complicated because Mormon fundamentalism, because Mormon polygamy extended down into the colonies in Mexico, there were a lot of interracial marriages between white Mormon American men to Mexican women and eventually women in Central and South America and allowing men in Central and South America to have the priesthood as well. And this is the colorism debate. Being indigenous, being Latino, being Hispanic, being these things is a little bit different in Mormon cosmology than being black. And I'm not going to get into all those nuances. We've covered it on the podcast. But interesting thing that's happening in Mormon fundamentalism that nobody's really Really talking about is what happens when these old frontier ideas interact with modern science. So you remember those DNA tests that you could get in the mail, MyHeritage, 23andMe, oh, what are all of them? I, I did one a couple years ago. I think mine came back and said I had 4% African blood. And that percentage, 4%, is small. But if I were to get that test now and I was a Mormon fundamentalist, that could get me kicked out of some groups. And that's exactly what is happening in some of these groups. They are sending in for DNA tests. They're getting back results. And if there are any African markers at all, it is causing a lot of problems for people. And as you know, if you've gotten these tests, you can expect some things. You know, I have a lot of Scandinavian heritage that was expected, but I did not expect Native American heritage and things like that. And of course, there's debate on the accuracy of these tests as well. But it's interesting that these tests are shaking things up for Mormon fundamentalist communities and really challenging their doctrines. And so Moroni Jessup is going to share a very personal story that he's been wanting to share for many years about this exact experience and what this means. Now, just one last note. As you know, if you've listened to any interviews with Moroni, Moroni Jessup is living the United Order uh, with a small community of people in Arizona, in Concho, Arizona. He lives off the grid and internet access is very spotty for him. He can get it to get online or do TikTok, but when he records, he has to actually travel into town into town and get the closest Wi-Fi and that makes it really challenging. So we have over the years workshopped ways to get around, you know, his frontier ways, but he's still off the grid. So every once in a while, our sound will get, get a little choppy. It's a little echoey on my part. So just stick with it. It's not hard to understand. It's just a little garbled at some points, but if you can stick with it, you're going to hear a pretty incredible story. And I really, again, appreciate Moroni Jessup for stepping up to the plate and his vulnerability and courage in sharing his story today. I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you have a great 2023. 
I'm excited to welcome back an old friend, friend of the podcast, pretty regular guest, uh, Moroni Jessup. Moroni, can you say hello? Hi, Lindsay. Hi, everyone out there. You and I were talking offline for just a minute. And how long have we known each other? Five years? Yeah, yeah. it's been about five years now. Uh, time goes so fast. And and in that time, we have, I think from the very first time I met you, one of the things that fascinated me about you was not just that you were a committed fundamentalist who, I don't know, was kind of, you could be cool about it, I would say. I mean, yeah. you you are known as a punk rock polygamist. You have a music blog. Uh, a lot of people think of fundamentalism in sort of antiquated terms, and you're just a very a modern thinking person, even though you live off the grid and, you know, you adhere to sort of these old frontier ideas. I, I just thought that was fascinating. But another component that I think is really unique is that you're a person of color and a Mormon fundamentalist, which is yeah. almost unheard of, especially for men, correct? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, kind of a rare thing, but uh, yeah, my, my father is, is white and my mother is Mexican, born in Mexico. Yeah. So your father is a well-respected patriarch. Uh, every I, I love that people always tease you that you have the most Mormon name. <laughs> and uh, I think it's probably more common for Mormon fundamentalist men to marry women of color, but to have a brown man uh, with authority and priesthood is pretty rare. And you yourself have followed into your father's footsteps in the sense that you're pretty well respected in multiple communities. Uh, people respect your history, your theological takes for the most part. We're going to get into why there's some disagreement there. Uh, but tell me, what are we talking about today and, and why? Well, we're going to be talking about a kind of controversial subject, one that is not spoken of often, but really needs to be, and that is the priesthood and the temple ban as it exists, not just in Mormonism, but in Mormon fundamentalism. Now, five years ago, I had brought this up to you, and you definitely had thoughts on it, but it wasn't a good time to talk about it. Do you want to talk about why, you know, why five years ago wasn't good, but now is a different time? Right. Uh, five years ago, there was a lot of stuff going on. And it was deeply personal. Um, I remember that I talked to you and I said that I knew that I had a story to tell, but that I had to be ready. It had to be at a time when I felt ready to tell it. And it's taken me these five years to get ready to tell it, but I think I'm ready to, I think I'm ready to share it. So um, apologies for if Moroni's internet breaks up, he's off the grid. Um trying his best. It's one of the challenges we've had in our interviews. But you came to Sunstone this summer, uh, summer of 2022, and you and historian ethnographer Dr. Christina Rossetti gave a joint presentation about fundamentalism and the race and priesthood ban. And it was quite controversial. I, I had to applaud your bravery. I think that you have a very unique position amongst your community and friends and family towards it. And you gave that presentation, which you're going to be giving parts of that here. Um, yeah. Talk to me about why, why this is such an important thing for you to talk about what it was like giving that presentation 
maybe some of the responses and then we'll get into what you're talking about. Okay. Well, first of all, I, I just have to say that Dr. Rosetti rocks. She just gave an awesome presentation of her research paper and covered a lot of interesting topics. And I was really, really grateful and honored to be able to present with her. I have to say that presenting at Sunstone and presenting here, I'm I'm quaking just a little bit because this is such a deep, deep topic and one that's difficult because it requires that I have to unpack a lot of things that I was brought up with, including racist ideas. And, you know, it's difficult to just sort through all this, but we can get into it. I am a practicing Mormon fundamentalist, and I just want to say that I'm not a professional historian. I'm not, I'm not an academic. I have to use my own personal experience to kind of guide me through all this. I, even though I'm a fundamentalist, I was actually raised in the LDS church. I was in the LDS church until I was 20. Now, my last name, Jessup, as everybody knows, that's one of the more common names in Mormon fundamentalism because it's been part of fundamentalism since the beginning. But my grandfather and his wife actually went back to the LDS church. So my dad was raised in the LDS church. I was born and raised in the LDS church. And it wasn't until at some point that we decided to, as a family, return to Mormon fundamentalism. My dad. Okay, I got to talk about my dad for a little bit. He was white, but he served a mission in Mexico, which is where he met my mother. My mother was born in Mexico raised in the United States. Back in the 1960s, that was kind of that was kind of unusual to have an integrated mixed race marriage like that. So my dad endeavored as best as he could to uh, not raise us racist. However, that said, I have to say that my dad started leaning towards fundamentalism in 1978. As we all know, 1978 is when the priesthood ban officially ended by the LDS church. And we've sort of talked about this before. So this is, you know, if you're more interested after this conversation, go back and listen to some of our episodes with Moroni talking about this. We did an interview sort of about your upbringing and past, but like you said, the 1978 date is important because a lot of mainstream LDS people were so incensed by, by what the ban represented and it wasn't just about allowing men of African descent, the priesthood and, and Black people into the temple, but it was also sort of this idea, this retreat that the, the modern church, that, that signaled um, that the church was completely lost. And so a lot of mainstreamers joined fundamentalism and your dad, your family was one of those. Right. Uh, I think that the ranks of fundamentalism really swelled at that point. Uh, it seems like every time there's a major shift in policy or change in the church that it causes fundamentalism to grow. Anyway, around uh, age 20, you know, even though even though this happened in 1978, it took several years for our family to make the transition from from mainstream LDS members to fundamentalists and I was around 20 years old when I got excommunicated. I think we've talked about this before too. I I had a I had like a a uh, decision that was placed in front of me. I was either going to become a DJ and open a club. <laughs> me and my friends even had a building kicked out, or uh, my uh, dad offered to pay my college if I moved up 
from Arizona up to Salt Lake City to live with my independent fundamentalist relatives. So I thought about it and prayed about it, and I decided to um, move to Utah. And I moved in with one of my uncles who was a polygamist, and I started associating with a lot of young people that were fundamentalists that were my age. One of the first things that I noticed right away that was kind of startling to me was the amount of racism that existed with the fundamentalist crowd. And I do want to say that there's a lot of good people there with the independent fundamentalists, but I wasn't used to it because even though my dad believed in the priesthood ban, even though my dad left the church due to the doing away of the priesthood ban, he endeavored to teach us to treat people with kindness and with equality. And so blatant racism was something that I had never experienced until that point. Most of it directed to black people. Although I did experience for the first time in my life, I experienced the receiving end of racism because of my Mexican heritage. I remember at one point, uh, there was an independent fundamentalist girl who was going to give me a ride home from college. And we were both waiting for the driver to show up and we were waiting outside of the car. And she asked me, she said, uh, so you're from Arizona? And I said, yeah. And she said, ooh, how can you stand living there with all the Mexicans that live there? And I said, well, it's kind of easy because I'm Mexican. Things became very awkward from that point. My mother called at that point and she said, you know, they were planning on moving from Arizona up to Utah to join me where I was living. And I called up my mom and I was super depressed. I told her, I said, you know, you're not, you're not going to, you're not going to like it here. She said, why? And I said, well, they don't really like Mexicans. So uh, shortly after that, we, uh, and I talked about this in our previous interview, we wound up joining the Apostolic United Brethren or the AUB as it is typically called, or, or the Allred group, as it is called, among other fundamentalists. And that particular group had kind of a less intense attitude towards people of other race. They have a sizable colony down in Osumba, Mexico. In the AUB, they have quite a few people of Mexican descent who are members. I think that my, my parents kind of liked that aspect of it. And also, my wife, Andrea, came from a family of half Japanese descent. So, you know, my wife was half Japanese and I'm half Mexican. And, you know, so it was a little more ethnically diverse. However, there was still a restriction on people of uh, African descent from even joining. I remember that there was a, a black guy who came around wanting to join the AUB when I was there. And they wouldn't even offer him uh, baptism. They told him to go back to the LDS church and that that was where he belonged. Anyway, as far as these uh, teachings about the priesthood ban, I really saw no reason to question it because uh, these things had been taught by many of the fundamentalist leaders. These things were taught by Brigham Young. When I became a fundamentalist, I just accepted the priesthood ban and everything that it entailed at base value. And well, uh, and. and Sorry to interject, but there's an important distinction here, too, which is even though you're going to be very impacted by these racist ideas throughout your life, there is still a sort of line where because you're of Mexican descent and not African descent, you are still, in according to Mormon theology, allowed typical, I would say, like average low level priesthood, right? Whereas Black right. men in fundamentalism are not even allowed to to be there. So there is still a difference. There's sort of this colorism that exists within Mormon doctrine, which we've talked a lot about on this podcast. 
Right. And um, there was something that was taught there. It wasn't like an official teaching that they would say over the pulpit, but it was one that I heard in private, like in priesthood meeting discussions, that it was okay for a man of white descent to marry a, quote, Lamanite woman, but it was not okay for a, quote, Lamanite man to marry a white woman. So there was still a disparity, even though people were of, you know, accept more accepting towards people of indigenous backgrounds. There was still some prejudice and discrimination, I guess you might say. Yeah, I think we could trace that all the way back to original, you know, church leaders who had to grapple with this idea where we see on the frontier there are ideas of, quote, Indian wives or Lamanite wives, but never... I think I think we found a few cases digging this this history up where maybe a white woman married a brown man, but it was very looked down on. Yeah, so there's definitely a precedent for that uh, line of thinking. So uh, yeah, get into it. Let's talk about the history and what your presentation was. Sure, sure. So uh, I'm not going to get into the reason why, but uh, my whole family wound up being thrown out of the AUB over doctrinal disagreements with the priesthood council and uh, we wound up returning to Arizona. My dad started an intentional community and started a united order again in, in Arizona. You know, it wasn't very big. There was maybe a handful of families. I wound up, you know, because of my connections, this is like in the early days of the internet. Uh, and immediately, as soon as I got online back in the late nineties, early two thousands, I was on the Mormon discussion forums um, talking about uh, gospel doctrine. And uh, I got an email out of the blue from a guy who was in the AUB. He uh, had taken a Polynesian second wife. Now, I'm going to preface what I'm saying really quick. There has never been a priesthood issue in the history of the church with Polynesian people. But yet, because of colorism, like, like you previously mentioned, there is an issue with Polynesians with the fundamentalists. They lump Polynesians, Melanesians, uh, Australians, anybody with dark skin, they, they lump under the same, quote, uh, curse of Cain that uh, is usually ascribed to people of African descent. Now, I know that that's uh, kind of odd for a lot of mainstream LDS members to hear, but that is the case with the fundamentalists. That they even discriminate against Polynesians. And, you know, Polynesians have such a rich history in the church, you know, they, they are indelibly connected to church history uh, as far back as when Joseph Smith sent the first missionaries to the Cook Islands. Anyway, this guy had taken as a second wife a uh, Polynesian woman. He had uh, requested to have this marriage ratified by the AUB Council. The head of the AUB at that time was Owen Allred. He's a brother of Rulon already. Owen kind of vacillated. One minute he was telling this guy that he was going to go ahead and seal them. And then the next moment he was saying he couldn't because of her lineage. She was half Maori and half Samoan from New Zealand. Her children from her previous marriage, the father was Tonga. This, for some reason, was unacceptable to the AUB, and so he couldn't get the ceiling that he was looking for to this woman that he had already taken as his wife. He wrote to me an email, wanted, he explained the situation, wanted to know if he could come to us to get a ceiling, 
And I said that I would take it up to my father. So I took it to my dad one day after our weekly prayer meeting. I said, hey, you know, this guy is um, wanting to come here with his wife. What do you think? And my dad, like me, didn't have any reason to question that uh, Polynesians couldn't hold the priesthood. And uh, so he said, son, you better just leave this one alone. Just let it be. And so I look back at this and I cringe, but I actually wrote um, the guy back a letter and that said, that, you know, I don't think you have a place among us. After that, shortly after that, my dad passed away. Then this guy who I had kind of chased away wound up sending me another email and another email and constantly he was pestering me, you know, and he finally said something that resonated with me. He said, all I wanted in the AUB was righteous judgment for me and my wife. And he said they wouldn't give it to me. They wouldn't even address this issue. You it's said righteous about. judgment. Sorry, you're breaking up a little bit. Righteous oh, judgment. Oh, sorry. So, yeah, he said that he all, all I wanted was righteous judgment, and they wouldn't give it to me. That resonated with me because why were we afraid of this topic? Why were we not looking at it directly? I wound up inviting him to uh, come out to our little United Order community in Arizona for one of our conferences. Between one of our conference sessions, we were all gathered outside uh, in front of the building that we had, and his car pulled up from Utah. He got out of the car, and then she got out of the car, Polynesian wife. And I took one look at her, and I instantly, it's hard to describe, I felt like a swell of love and respect for her. And I thought, I remember thinking, oh, there's nothing to worry about here. Apparently, that sentiment was shared by some people in our community, but by other people, they looked at her and the first thing that they thought was Canaanite, Canaanite. This, this whole thing started to cause a division within our community. And it was like split almost right down the middle. So what happened is this family, uh, this man and his wife and his uh, daughters, all of them from New Zealand, wound up moving to Arizona and joining with our community. But they were kind of held in this limbo uh, thing where they weren't really fully accepted members of the community. They weren't allowed endowments because we were waiting. We were waiting for the men in leadership in our community to um, make a decision about it. And we're talking like from the time they moved to the community to the time a decision was made was more than four years. That's how long it took. And they, you know, they gratefully accepted this, half membership sort of thing. One of the daughters was teaching primary. You know, they were functioning with us, attending all our functions, going to sacrament meetings, but they were restricted from the priesthood. And that just didn't seem fair to me. So I started personally launching a study into this about, you know, uh, from a church history standpoint, I studied how missionaries had gone to places like Tonga. When circumstances happened that missionaries had to leave the islands, that they would leave local people, local Tongans in charge in, in basic capacities. So these people had priesthood without any restriction at all all the way back to the early days of the church. So it just didn't make sense to me. I think that one of the things that kind of convinced me was that John Taylor, and you know how important John Taylor is to Mormon fundamentalists. He's their favorite action figure hero. So, <laughs> right. So in 1886, he received the eight hour, uh, you know, the, the 1886 revelation and, you know, that spawned the stories about the eight-hour meeting, and so forth. So that same year, in conference, John Taylor declared the Islanders as the House of Israel. You know, in my mind back then, I was thinking, you know, 
this is the man who uh, saw Joseph Smith and Jesus Christ face to face. And yet, you know, if he was wrong, surely they would have told him. <laughs> That's kind of the way I was thinking, you know. It got to the point, me and another brother in our community wound up traveling with this family to New Zealand. We actually went with the family to New Zealand. And uh, the purpose was to look for something that would convince the, the uh, leaders in our community that these people were okay. You know, I, it's kind of embarrassing to admit that, but that's what we were doing. We were trying to make sure that they were okay. I went to the Hamilton Temple in New Zealand, and there I found, you know, uh, the testimony of a brother who uh, said that the Maori had had prophecies before the LDS church even came that the priesthood was going to come to them. I asked the people at the at the uh, temple um, visitor center if I could photocopy it, and so I photocopied this man's testimony. And I still have it to this day. So anyway, so what I did, I made a packet for the leadership in our community. I assembled all the quotes. I assembled that testimony. I uh, John Taylor's testimony. I made this nice little packet that uh, detailed my opinion on Polynesians and whether or not they could hold the priesthood. And so they invited me to one of their council meetings one day and I presented them the packet. They looked at it and they rejected it not they didn't even look at it too carefully they just glanced at it and summarily rejected it so uh at one point after that one of the leaders of the community had a son who uh an unmarried son who took an interest in one of these polynesian daughters so uh this leader in the community decided that the answer would be to do uh like the 23 and me style um dna tests he took the daughter of this family and did a DNA test on her to see if she had any sub-Saharan African markers. Her DNA test came up 0% sub-Saharan African. Then uh, I, it was like, it was like uh, an equal mix between European and Asian. But oddly enough, there was like 20% Native American in there too. You know, you know uh, once the DNA test was taken, the leader in that particular community decided to move forward. And I just want to say I'm, I'm related to the, that particular leader very closely. I'm refraining from, for his privacy's sake of not saying who he is or how he's related to me, just, just in case I'm sounding cryptic, I kind of am, <laughs> but. Um, well, well, like we said, this is a very personal thing to you that impacts your entire family. And so there are a few things that, you know, the majority of my audience is going to be people who aren't fundamentalists or curious about fundamentalism, but there are going to be a lot of fundamentalists that are listening to this. And I, again, I don't think we can restate how radical these ideas are coming from you. Oh, yeah. So anyway, so based on this uh, DNA test, there was a marriage that took place and an endowment and a marriage. And uh, it was kind of like the line in the sand. You know, it was like, don't cross this line. So it was a Saturday. We did the endowments. A lot of people in our community didn't show up. And then there was uh, there was a ceiling. This young man was sealed to this Polynesian girl. And uh, then there was a wedding reception. A lot of people didn't show up to it. And the very next day, we used to meet every Monday morning for true order of prayer. We had like a room in the upstairs of our chapel that uh, that had an altar and that we would uh, dress in the robes and pray there. Every, send, every Sunday morning early, like at six in the morning. That morning we showed up. Everyone had a key to the prayer room. Everyone who was endowed. Everyone had free access to it to go up and pray in this, partic in this particular room whenever they wanted. But on this particular morning, the keys didn't work to open the door. Uh, what had happened is that some people in the community had gone 
and had changed the locks without telling anybody. That's how we found out that we were cut off. That's how we found out that we were excommunicated. They literally changed the locks on you. Right, right. We were literally barred. And there wasn't really any discussion. There wasn't any trial or priesthood court or anything. Just the locks were changed. I had been like the, the Sunday school teacher for the youth for like a decade. My wife had been like primary president for like 10 years. And uh, we were both released from our position without without uh, thanks, without even informing us. They just called other people to the positions. At that point, you know, we had a handful of families. It was split right down the middle. There was us and what we used to, to this day, we still call them the other siders. <laughs> the other siders, there were basically two communities then. And, you know, sad to say, some of the people on the other siders were close family members to me, like in my immediate family. So that was painful. Things were awkward for many, many years. And, uh, you know, uh, we're talking like this happened in 2007. So it's been a lot of years. The way it stands now, we occasionally meet with the other siders in the social capacity now. There's not really any hard feelings, but for a long time there was. There was like, you know, more there's no people that are as good at shunning than Mormons. You know, the Amish don't got anything on us. We shun like the best of them. It really is one of our spiritual gifts. <laughs> you know, for a long time it was very awkward. I would pass somebody on the road and I'd say, are they gonna wave? Are they gonna wave? You know, he didn't wave. <laughs> so it was it was kind of awkward but you know we had this uh these two communities and each of them were meeting uh separately we're talking like about 10 years later okay this and this was right around the time that uh you and I came into contact this was okay in 2017 in the in the winter I was on year polygamy and then in the spring, I went to the Arizona Symposium. This happened just right afterwards. What happened is that uh, the leader in the community, the one that I was telling you about that I'm related to, said to me, if we're going to, if we required this um, young lady to get a DNA test, we ought to require anybody who joins to get a DNA test. And I was like, yeah, maybe. And he said, we ought to take DNA tests ourselves. <laughs> After that, he took one of my daughters and one of his grandsons and did DNA tests on both of them. He paid for them, so he's the one that got the results. So, you know, you get the kit, you uh, do the spit thing, and then you send it off. You send it off to get tested, and it takes about a month or so, I don't know. So in the interim, you know, we're, we're waiting for results. And so uh, I take my wife in the summer of 2017 up to Utah for a family reunion with her family. On the way back, uh, and this is kind of an odd story, but uh, I'm going to tell it anyway. <laughs> we go to Rockland Ranch. And for those of you who don't know, Rockland Ranch is a fundamentalist community outside of Moab where they have blasted homes uh out of a cliff wall. So they're basically like cave homes. It's really cool. Really just beautiful territory and ingenious the way they've constructed their homes. So we stopped to see some friends there. They feed us dinner, we visit, and then they uh, they give us a bedroom to stay for the night. And my wife and I stayed in like the very back of the cave, the very back bedroom. And there's no windows. There's, um, you know, it's just cave wall. That's, you know, it's just red sandstone hewn out of the cliff. And so it was extremely, extremely dark and extremely quiet. We went to bed in essentially was like a uh, sensory deprivation tank. <laughs> 
And that night, I had a spiritual experience that I'm going to share. That spiritual experience, uh, I woke up in the middle of the night, and there was a woman standing at my bedside. And uh, I was wondering whether I was dreaming. I even touched my eyeballs to make sure that my eyes were open. And they were. I was awake. When I saw this woman, I wasn't afraid or anything. She she had like long, dark hair, and she was dressed in white. And she had like this this soft white light shining all around when I looked at her, she didn't say anything to me. I looked at her and then she started showing me scenes that I saw like just in the air in front of me. What I saw was first she showed me a skull. And then uh, after she showed me the skull, she the skull disappeared. And then she looked at me with significance, kind of like with her eyes, like saying, do you get it? Then she showed me another scene. She showed me a room full of people. I could see people in this room as far back as my eyes could see. And then after that scene disappeared, she looked at me again and said, uh, you know, kind of like, do you get it? Afterwards, she showed me another scene where I saw a stream of sand coming out of the sky and tracing a spiral pattern as it, as it, as, as the sand hit the floor, it started tracing a spiral pattern. Then again, the look, do you get, do you get it? You know, significant look. She showed me these items three times. And then after the experience was over, it was just kind of like I rolled over and went back to sleep, you know, and it's kind of funny. I didn't think it was odd at the time, you know, in that half sleep state, I just accepted it and went to sleep. Well, the next day, you know, we didn't have cell phone service. So as soon as we left Rockland Ranch, I got cell service and I called one of my friends who's really good with dream interpretation. Now she's not even LDS, she's pagan, but she's really good at dream interpretation. And so I uh, called her up and I said, okay, this is what I experienced. Can you tell me the meaning of these things? And I said, okay, first the skull. Skull means death, right? And she said, no, not necessarily. A skull could mean knowledge. And I said, okay, what about the room full of people? And she says, that's your ancestors. I said, okay, what about the sand coming out of the sky and tracing a spiral pattern on the ground? And she said, that's easy. That's DNA. I said, huh, okay. So we drove from Moab back down to my home in Arizona, and we pulled up in the evening as the sun was setting. And uh, that leader of our community, who I'm related to, was standing in our driveway as we were coming home. And he had a paper in his hands, and it was the DNA results. And so we went and we looked at him, and uh, he sat me down. He was very serious. And when I looked at him, you know, a lot of stuff that I knew, you know, Native American, European, but then there was like a small percentage of Nigerian. <laughs> and I looked at that and blinked and I was like, this can't be right. He started talking immediately that about me being restricted in the priesthood from that point on. And I, I told him, I said, no, I know I hold the priesthood. This can't be right. You know, this, ha this can't be, this can't be right. I went home that night with the DNA results in my hand. I tossed and turned and I can't tell you how I felt. I felt like my life had been a lie. And that, you know, I just couldn't account for this DNA test. And the second night, I tossed and turned and slept very uneasily also. But then on the third night, I started remembering instances in my life where I saw evidence of the priesthood when I had used it. And I, I thought, no, you know, I know I hold the priesthood. So I got to talking to my wife and I said, you know, I know I hold the priesthood. She, uh, she concurred with me. She believed that I did too. And uh, some people in my family took this attitude. The DNA test can't be right because I know I hold the priesthood. I'm not going to say or suppose that just because I had a minuscule amount of African DNA that that makes me black. 
or that even the DNA tests were accurate, but it was enough to get me to start questioning. And um, I was going to ask about that. Like, was there any discussion? I know when, you know, we all went through that craze where we sent in our DNA and then there was this conversation about the accuracy of the tests themselves. Did that factor into the conversations at all? Yeah. uh, Well, see, now this individual, this leader was facing a conundrum because he had based his testimony on the Polynesians on DNA, whereas I had based mine on church history. He had based his solely on the DNA and he had moved forward based on that. He couldn't accept their DNA tests and reject ours. It created too much of a conundrum for him. He called a meeting with all of the endowed people in our community to get together to decide what to do about us. I remember it felt like a trial. <laughs> the, the discussion was basically centered around whether or not we could function in the priesthood or not. Somebody in the community brought up something and they said, you know, we have to treat this like we do a legal case that you're that you're innocent until proven guilty. So my recommendation is that we allow Moroni and his family to continue functioning in the priesthood until a point where we've determined that they can't. Everybody felt good about that. I felt good about that. But certain people in the community didn't. You can see it on their faces during the meeting that they didn't accept this solution. One day, my wife, who was teaching the little kids for Sunday school, had to go through the building and pass by where, when I say building, we were meeting. When I say building, we were actually meeting in somebody's house. My wife walked through the room and happened to pass by the room where the youth, the teenagers were being taught. Most of the teenagers were my kids. The teacher was saying, well, if you're worthy, maybe one of these days you'll be eligible in the next life to hold the priesthood. And you have to understand this topic was something that was being talked only among the adults. We hadn't even told our kids about what was going on. But here, this Sunday school teacher was already proclaiming them as not able to hold the priesthood. My wife, anybody who knows her, she's sweet and she's calm. Never loses her temper, but in this instance, she exploded. She exploded at this teacher, and she got our kids up and marched them out, and we left, and we we never went back. The leader in that community contacted us, and, you know, I have to say, he really didn't want us to leave. And he told us, he said, you know, we still want you to come to meetings. We still want you to attend with us. And uh, my wife and I said, yeah, but but no more than observers, not, not participants in the priesthood. And he, he was like, well, yeah. So, you know, I do have to give him, he was really trying his best to uh, be open, to continue to have us come, but it was just too much of a conundrum for him to accept, you know, too, too big of a topic. So from that point on, I've been without a community. I'm, when I say I'm an independent, that's absolutely correct. I have nobody that I associate with, nobody, you know, uh, and since all this, I've had a lot of people who, who uh, feel the same way that I do. And that's, uh, you know, I, I have to, I guess I have to backtrack a little bit and talk about where my stand is now on the priesthood band. Well, let me ask this really quick, because I'm sure some listeners are wondering why stay in Mormon fundamentalist belief at all? You know, it's clearly so hard for them to accept any sort of progression or error about the race doctrine, which is constantly wounded you. So so why do you stick around? Well, you have to understand where the fundamentalists are coming from. They believe in the fundamental doctrines of the church. To them, if Brigham Young taught it, it's it's pretty it's pretty much unquestionable doctrine, unquestionable, you know, there's no questioning Brigham Young to a lot of fundamentalists. There's I no mean, even even stuff that's just disprovable though, like a lot of Brigham Young's terrible ideas about science. I mean, they <laughs> they can't 
see that there, you know, he was a man of 19th century upbringing and he was absolutely influenced by that. And he said a lot of wrong things, like provably, demonstrably false things. And no, no. So I was just, you know, it's frustrating that this is the one that people hold on to, you know. Well, just in doing research before you and I talked, I came across some information that uh, Brigham Young believed that those who were mixed race, mixed African and mixed white, that they were like mules and couldn't reproduce, which is just mind boggling. But apparently that was the opinion of a lot of people back in that day. So you have to ask yourself, if Brigham Young was wrong on this, what else was he wrong on? Yeah, and I think that's what people don't want to do. So yeah, tell us more about how, why you think these why you're sticking to this ban because you start to these ideas that are keeping you at odds with your community. Um, you're really paying a price for these beliefs, but how did they change to you? First of all, this opened up this, you know, as hard as it is, and you know, it sounds like I'm telling the sob story, but in truth, I'm very grateful for that DNA test. I'm very grateful for the opportunity that I had to come to that understanding. I had never had a reason to question this particular uh, set of doctrines until this happened. And so I'm grateful for it. But uh, in essence, to me, and the things that I've studied, the priesthood ban is not a thing. And uh, why do I embrace fundamentalism? Because I still believe in in, uh, Mormonism. And I can't rightly go back to the LDS church because I don't agree with where they're at now. I know that a lot of people would say that the LDS church, you know, made progress forward in 1978, lifting the priesthood again. But uh, I would argue that they did it out of political expediency. And uh, I would also argue that they merely swept this topic under the rug. and They haven't have yet to, to fully address it. And uh, I think that um, we need to address it head on. I think that we need to own it. We need to talk about it. And that's my aim and that's my goal. I'm hoping that some of the fundamentalist community listens to me. And I know that some are. After I did my Sunstone presentation, I had a lot of people contact me and say that they agreed with me privately. They didn't want to say so publicly, but they agreed with me privately. I've since come across a lot of other fundamentalists who believe the same way that I do. So I think that things are changing. And that's the hope that I latch onto that this is going to change in fundamentalism. They're going to, in Mormonism, we say that by the mouth of two witnesses are all things established. And yet you look at the testimonies that in 1879 by Zebedee Coltrane that continued the priesthood ban. Back in 1879, Elijah Abel, who we know was one of the first, uh, I think he was the first black man who was ordained to the priesthood. He petitioned the first presidency to have his deceased wife sealed to him. He was told no by Brigham Young. And then in 1879, he went to John Taylor about it. So they assembled a meeting in the home of Abraham O. Smoot. And I think it's funny, Abraham O. Smoot had been a Southern convert who came to Utah with slaves. And so, but this is the guy that's going to decide whether or not blacks can receive the priesthood or not. You know, it seems incongruous and it seems like a a conflict of interest. But nonetheless, he was one of the ones deliberating. And then Zebedee Coltrane provides this contradictory testimony about that, well, Joseph Smith taught this. My argument is, and 
you know, I, I issue a challenge to any fundamentalist who disagrees with me to bring forth evidence that the prophet Joseph taught that the, that the blacks cannot hold the priesthood. There's a lot of uh, quotes that people bring up, but they don't really say what they don't really say explicitly that blacks cannot hold the priesthood. That was a Brigham Young creation all the way around. So anyway, that's that's why I hold on on to Mormon fundamentalism because I believe that Mormon fundamentalism is true. I just believe that Brigham Young tainted the waters with this particular doctrine. To give my own personal opinion, I mean, think how different Mormonism would be if we had continued the way it was, you know, back in back in Missouri when uh, when W. W. Phelps issued an open invitation to uh, blacks to come and join up with the Mormons and find freedom. You know, if we had continued along that vein, instead of giving into racism, think how different Mormonism would be right now if we hadn't have done that, if we had, if we had continued on that path. Yeah, I agree. And it's like you said, it's these arbitrary sort of self-interested things that people latch onto. And to me, it's less about adhering to the fundamentals, but just justifying lazy racism. Exactly. So talk to me about some of the boldest claims you made at the Sunstone presentation and how that was, uh, how fundamentalists reacted to that. Okay. So I mentioned that I'm alone and that I'm truly independent. And yet I'm starting to see in different communities, this whole topic is starting to be discussed. There's one particular group in Missouri, and I'm not going to talk a whole lot about them because I want to respect their privacy, but, uh, they are having an open debate right now about whether or not the priesthood ban is really a thing. You know, I'm not going to say the whole community is on board because they're not. There's like a telegram discussion and I'm a part of it. I just silently observe while they discuss the priesthood ban. I had to mute the, excuse me, I had to mute the conversation because I was getting like 300 notifications a day. That's how, that's how heated and, and vibrant this conversation is. But the fact that they're talking about it is what gives me hope because it's like before, you know, and I know Christina talked a lot about how she couldn't, uh, Christina Rossetti talked about how she couldn't find any evidence pre-civil rights movement that fundamentalists were even talking about the black issue, that uh, Joseph Musser, none of those wrote about it, talked about it. Mormon fundamentalists, even though they believe in the priesthood ban, they are super reticent about it. They don't like discussing it. It is something that they won't talk over the pulpit. They won't talk about it to investigators. They will talk about it privately amongst themselves. It is, it really is. It's one of the most deeply held beliefs by Mormon fundamentalists. And yet it is one of the least talked about. And the fact that this community in Missouri is having a discussion about it and talking about it. And there has even been, uh, a interracial plural marriage that's happened there. Not everybody there agrees with it, but at least they're having a discussion and a dialogue. And that to me is the beginning. That to me is the start of where this needs to go. As far as where I find myself in fundamentalism or, you know, I can't really go visit communities anymore because I don't know who has heard the story about my DNA test and how they're going to react to it. I mean, I guess a lot of them are going to know now, now that I'm talking to you, but I mean, I find myself in kind of a weird place. I, I sometimes miss having a fundamentalist community to live around, but at the same time, I want to protect my children and want to be sure before I go somewhere that it'll be someplace that they're 
accepted. And it's been somewhat of a cathartic experience to me. You know, is this the way Elijah Abel felt? Is this the way Walker Lewis felt? Is this the way Jane Manning felt? I don't know. I can't imagine what, it, what it, you know, for me, going throughout what I am in fundamentalism, I can't imagine how much worse it was for those African saints who were back in, back in the church back in the days of Brigham Young. Well, I do think that you speaking up is an important part. I really appreciated during the discussions of Under the Banner of Heaven, which uh, in case people don't know, you helped a lot of the research on the fundamentalist aspect, making sure that that was accurate. You helped out on the show with that, came to the premiere. But in the discussions, you said, and I think this is also another bold statement as a fundamentalist to make, that blood atonement, you think, was an error. It was a wrong doctrine. And and I absolutely agree with you. I think there's a doctrinal and historical case to be made that that doctrine is completely false and and misguided and and came out of a, a wrong context, out of a traumatic context. Yet a lot of people still adhere to it because it's from these old frontier fundamentals, if if you will. And I just think more brave people need to look at these doctrines. Consider that that from a faithful standpoint, that this is a church of continuing revelation. So I know that comes in conflict with Mormon fundamentals sometimes, but you're one of the brave people pioneering it for your community. And I really respect that. Thank you. I think that it's incumbent upon us, mainstream LDS, Mormon fundamentalists, whatever persuasion of Mormon you are, it's incumbent upon us to examine all of our teachings, not just one of all of them, and decide which ones uh, serve us, which ones are erroneous, and then summarily expel the ones that we feel are not correct. That's what I'm trying to do here. And it's a long process, but that's my goal ultimately. Where can people find out more about this perspective and uh, the work that you're doing? Well, they can follow me on TikTok because I'm starting to discuss a lot of this stuff. Not only that, there's other creators on TikTok that I'm going to give a shout out to that are actually black and discussing the priesthood ban issues. There's creators. Uh, one of them, his name is uh, Black Exmo. It's kind of funny. He's an ex-Mormon. He's black. He, he was raised in the church, served a mission, and then left the church over the, uh, over the priesthood and temple ban. Yet he gets along with the fundamentalists for some reason. And I think that he gets along with the fundamentalists because because uh, we are open about what the church used to teach. In fact, my next trip to Utah, he and I have, I don't know, he said we were going to either share a milk or a beer. <laughs> I'll probably go with the beer. Root <laughs> uh, beer. Root beer. Root beer. Float and, and com- combine the two. Well, uh, yeah, we'll also link your Sunstone presentation with the history. It's a lot of good historical data to back up these these claims. And so we'll put that in the show notes. There's an audio version so people can listen to that. So thanks again, Moroni, for having the courage to share your story. Like I said, I think this is what makes you a leader in your community because you're willing to give the hard medicine, you know, uh, to step out of the norm and sometimes go against the status quo and i think that that's brave and courageous well thank you for having me on Lindsay. it's always a pleasure
The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.